0: Good afternoon. I'm Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest. We welcome you to another edition. This is the New York City, New Jersey, Philadelphia edition, and uh, with me, my co-host is Joe Works in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Joe, good afternoon.
1: Hello, Jeff. Y'all He'll to be back with you after a couple of weeks' absence.
0: All right. So now I'm not seeing what I'm used to seeing, so let's just make things, make sure things are working okay. Can you see me, and can you see you? I can see both of us. Okay, well, uh, I can only see me, so I don't know if that means I'm better off than you are or worse off, but uh, I, in fact, I see me twice <laughs> instead of seeing you. But if everybody else is good, that's great. We've got, a, a, I think, an interesting webcast today. We're going to have a couple of guests come on in just a few minutes. Doy Moyer and Luke Moyer are going to be joining us to talk about uh, establishing biblical authority. Uh, Doy's written a book that we'll talk just a little bit about. But before that, um, we want to encourage any of you uh, to join us by means of the Facebook feed. This is being live streamed over Facebook, and you can send your comments to us, questions that you'd like for us to address uh, there in the comments section. If you are looking at this through the Bible Quest app, you can point your cursor to the bottom of your window there and you uh, probably you'll see a little row of icons come up. One of those will say Q and a, and you can use that to send us questions and answers. Our webcast engineer, Noah Andrews will be sure and get your comments to us so that we'll see them and we'll be able to tackle them as best we can. Anything else as far as housekeeping that we need to do, Joe?
1: Um, Well, uh, Maybe just because i haven 't been around for the last couple of weeks, want to start with uh, seeing what you 've uh, studied recently
0: i 'll well, uh, tell you, I do have something that I want to talk about that uh, I talked about uh, this past weekend while I was uh, speaking uh, away, and that is um, a First Corinthians chapter thirteen. If we can look at First Corinthians chapter thirteen for just for a moment. There's an interesting uh, observation, at least it's interesting to me, when we look at that chapter and it talks about love. Um, and I want to bring something up on screen. I'm just having all kinds of fits. There we go. Right there is what I want. All right. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we, we sometimes talk about uh, this is the great chapter on love, but maybe we miss an observation. And, and that is, it has to do with how fundamental love is to everything. Joe, the, the church at Corinth, where Paul, uh, the church, Paul is addressing in this letter, some of the problems at the church at Corinth, what were they?
1: Uh, division, um, sin to remain in the church. What kind uh, of sin? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, immorality.
0: Yeah, sexual immorality, and they were even in chapter six. We see evidence they were even condoning sexual immorality. Right. Uh, some of the other issues in the church, uh, what doubting the resurrection—that there was even such a thing as resurrection.
1: Yeah. Uh, abuse of spiritual gifts. Yeah. Uh, and making a mockery of the Lord's supper.
0: Yeah. Um, you look at this this situation in the church at Corinth, and it's shocking and um, some of us would say, well, you know, I would never I would never want to be a part of a congregation like that. What is interesting is that when we get to this section on love, it's related to all the rest of the letter. Let's look at 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and uh, using the language, I think I'm using language of the New American Standard here. He says, love is long-suffering in verse 4. And if you think about the Corinthians and their... Uh, Willingness to go to law with one another in chapter six uh, rather than just to be defrauded and to accept the fact that maybe they came out short in some respect in some kind of um, some kind of conflict with a brother that 's not really long suffering Paul says love is he says love is kind, and then you think about the problems in the observing uh, in the observance of the lord 's Supper and how they were disregarding one another and one was uh, drunken, and another was hungry, and not even waiting for one another. It doesn't sound very kind. And then you see the statement: "Love is not jealous." And you go back to First Corinthians, chapter three, and verse three, and Paul said to them, "You are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you jealousy and strife, are you not carnal?" And then he says, uh, "Love does not brag." And the word that he uses there is a word that's only used in that place in the New Testament, not anywhere else, but, the, but it's closely related to the next idea where he says love is not arrogant, or the American standard says puffed up. Joe, can you do imitations? Can you do impressions? <laughs> uh, if you ask my children, they would say no. Well, give it a shot. Do an impression of blowing up a balloon. We, we want the sound, especially. <laughs> There you go. All right. There's a little bit more slobber involved in your blowing up a bloom than is ideal, but nonetheless. That's you, why my
1: children don't want me doing it. Yeah.
0: Now, now do it again, but this time say "ciao" after you do it. Siato. Bu-si-a-o. So that's the word for puffed up. And and so Paul says, love is not puffed up, and yet you go through First Corinthians. How many times does he indicate the Corinthians were puffed up? First Corinthians 4:6. He warns that none be puffed up for the one against the other. In 4.18, he says, some are puffed up. In 4.19, he says, them that are puffed up. 5.2, he says, you are puffed up. In chapter 8, verse 1, in talking about eating things in the idol temple, and some of the Corinthians were wanting to justify that in disregard of how it would affect their brethren, and they were justifying themselves because they knew that no idol is anything. They said, well, really, this idol is nothing, so what does it matter if I participate in this? Paul says uh, knowledge puffs up. Um, They needed to have some love there. And and so what I'm getting at here is you look at this list of things uh, that Paul says love is not. As you go through 1 Corinthians, what you see is they are things that the Corinthians were. And so this is not just an isolated passage about love. This is, you know, let me put it this way. Shouldn't be surprising with all the problems at Corinth that there was a love deficiency. Well, you know, Joe, what does Jesus say about love and its relationship to everything God has commanded?
1: The greatest and the second greatest commandment. Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your
0: heart and soul and mind. And then the second, like unto it is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he says, the whole law hangs on this and the prophets. So when we think about that, all of God's instructions are really about loving God and loving our fellow man when we see all kinds of problems like we see in the church at Corinth, why should we be surprised if it boils down to there's a love deficiency, and maybe we should look at ourselves a little bit when we see problems amongst ourselves. So that's what I got today. That's what I thought I'd
1: offer. Well, I, think that, uh, I like how chapter 8 and in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians uh, sort of gives us a preview of that. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies, and then he just really just jumps into that in chapter 13. That's yeah. Just- Perfect. All right. You ready to bring on some guests? That'll be good. Who do we have today? Roy Moyer and Luke Moyer. I believe they are late related based on the last name. All right. Let's, uh, one's father and one's son?
0: Yes. All right. So we'll challenge our viewers. We bring them on here to see if they can figure out which one is father and which one is son. Doy, I see you. Welcome to the webcast today. Got to get your microphone turned on there. So, you, yep, you're on. Good afternoon, Doy.
2: Good afternoon. How are you doing today?
0: And Luke, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much. Good to be here.
0: All right. Now, to our viewers, you can send us any of your questions, Bible related questions, or you can just tell us who you think is father and who you think is son between Doy and Luke. And uh, we'll see how our viewers do with that today. Doy has written it's a book called Mind the King. And it's published by DeWard Publishing. You can go to DeWard.com, I think it is, or you can go to Amazon, various, well, apps, you can get the book, right?
2: I can interrupt just a second. Actually, it's uh, Mind Your King, and it's, uh, you can get it on Amazon. It, it's uh,
1: self-published. Oh, it's self-published. Okay. I'm sorry. So uh, here's, a, here's a quick, this is the, what the cover looks like. Uh, if you're, somebody is looking for it on Amazon.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you had that, Joe. I just had the Kindle version, and I didn't know how to hold up a Kindle version. So, <laughs> so good. So, Doy, what what how would you sum up the book? Mind Your King. The the um the title kind of points us in the direction, but tell us a little bit about what the book is about.
2: Well, the uh the basic premise begins with uh Isaiah 52 and verse 7, which uh tells us that you know, part of the proclamation of the gospel is that your God reigns. And Isaiah 52, 7, of course, is the passage that uh, tells us
0: that... We think of that as the passage about the feet.
2: Right, and that's Paul quoted that in Romans 10, and uh, he didn't quote the king part, but that's still part of the gospel message right there. So I use that kind of as my base passage uh, throughout and then then basically, looking at the question, what does that mean uh, if we're going to to uh, understand that, that he reigns and uh, look at the issue of of his authority and how we can understand his will, uh, how we go about uh, establishing that authority or recognizing that authority in scripture
0: so so just starting there as we think about the people we talk to in the world from day to day. There are a lot of people who believe in God, but in a practical sense, do we see a lot of evidence do we see a lot do, do you run into a lot of people who though they believe in God, they don 't have a practical conception of God reigning of our being uh, subject to god 's rules or laws uh,
2: Well, certainly, uh, though in, in some ways that 's a little bit of a different uh, topic because um, well i I do a lot with evidences and apologetics, but uh this particular book is geared more toward uh christians and and their understanding of what it means to recognize the authority of god so there uh are various things in there about uh, the church and what it means uh to to be god 's people and and uh what God wants us to do or not do and so forth.
0: Yeah, and I picked up on that. I've not read the entire book, but in reading through some of it, I could see that it it is really aimed at believers. It's aimed at Christians who need to try to figure out how to apply God's word and how to make decisions about what he wants us to do or what it is he wants us to do and and the need to recognize that authority. But it struck a chord with me that it it seems to me, I run into people who have this, uh, here's an expression I hear. I just don't think God would want this or that. Or somebody will say, well, I just think God would want me to this or that. And in, in, in thinking about what you've written, it seemed to me just this idea of God's authority as king. Uh, if we have a, a, a political king and we're living in a country where we, so we have a king who's a dictator, we would be on dangerous ground if we just went around speculating what we think the king wants.
2: Well, you're right. And and there's certainly a connection to this point, because one of the things that I really try to stress is looking at that question of how do we know the will of God? What uh, If we're going to say God is our king, then that means we're seeking to please him in all things. and There are a number of passages that, that would make that point. Uh, our aim is to be well-pleasing to God. So uh, I can't uh, say that he's king on the one hand, and then on the other hand, say, but I'm going to do what I want. Uh, why call you I me mean, Lord, Lord, but do not the things which I say. I mean, that, that's the basic premise of, of, of this whole issue. Is it my will, or is it God's
0: will? So we talk start talking about my will or God's will, and we look at the scriptures, and we see in the scriptures, God says some things. He, he says some things, this is my will. He gives us some commands and those kinds of things. But we have a lot of narrative in the Bible, a lot of instructions. One of the things that has caught my attention as I look at different religious practices is there are subjects like the use of instrumental music in, in worshiping God. If God is king, we want to please him. We want to worship him the way he wants us to. When we talk about instrumental music, there's a topic where you can look at what scholars have said of all kinds of religious stripes, and there will be a consensus among many of them that in the first century, New Testament Christians did not use instrumental music, and yet in the denominations represented by those various people, you'll see instrumental music used, and they don't have a problem with that does that speak to a difference in understanding the authority of God's word?
2: Well, I definitely think it speaks to a difference in how God's word is to be understood and and applied. Um, When I look at that issue and think, well, clearly the New Testament uh, gives no indication that that's what God wants. And historically that's not been something that uh, they did early on. So in terms of the, the ancient Orthodox view uh, non uh, use of instruments would be the view. Um, but uh, I do have a chapter in the book on instrumental music. It's actually the longest chapter in there, but partly because, and, and if I can just share this, this part of, of that, um, my approach to that issue, uh, what I want people to see is not simply that when they come away from that thinking, oh, this is another thing we can't do. What I want people to understand is that the nature of the instruments uh, are, are really based upon temple practice, temple worship. Uh, when you look at, at uh, God's uh, commandment regarding instruments in the Old uh, Testament, a lot of people don't even realize that God did command it. They'll say, well, David made it up. Mm-mm. But uh, First Chronicles 29 uh you know, makes it clear that that's not the case. Uh, God's command, the command of David, was the command of God. So uh, God wanted it to be done, and he specified who would play it, what they were to play, when they were to play it, and so forth, and it was very clear. Uh, So it's part of the temple practices. So what you have surrounding the temple is the temple itself. Uh, You have the priesthood. You have the sacrifices. You have the instruments. You have everything that surrounds the temple. And so what I like to do is just demonstrate that really all of those features are pulled over into the New Testament and are fulfilled in in God's people so that uh, we are the temple. Ephesians 2 makes that clear. Other passages make it clear. Uh, We are the priesthood. We are the sacrifices. And we are the instruments. And the point is not uh, to come away and say, look what we can't do. The point is to come away and say, look who we are. And that ought to transform the way that we, we see our worship toward God.
0: Yeah, I, I I caught that discussion in your book, and and I don't I, you, I'm glad I didn't try to paraphrase it because you you conveyed it better than I was going to be able to paraphrase it. Luke, in your generation, um, you're in your late 20s, right? Yep. In your late 20s, the people of of your generation, this idea of um, uh, looking at the Bible and and um, needing God's authority for what we do. Does, is this an idea that's that's understood?
3: Is this an idea that people struggle with? What's your observations? I, I think the people in my generation, at least those that I've talked to, they say those things, uh, and they're actually very keen to use the rhetoric. You know, things like my king. Like I, I was talking with a um, a guy that I met off the street one time, part of the de- denominational world, mm-hmm. uh, and he was very keen to use terminology like you know God and Jesus, my king, and uh, pick up on things like that. Whenever I express to him much of what my dad has just expressed about, um, about say instrumental music, you know, he he you lo- stopped and he thought, well, you know what, that that makes a whole lot more sense than the way maybe I had thought of it before. The way you know maybe some other churches had tried to explain it to me earlier. So I, I think what it takes is going back to reevaluating a more root level of the way we approach it. Mm-hmm. It's not just about Certain arguments that we use, I think we have to boil it down to its root philosophy. And you know, one of my favorite chapters in the book was um, uh, chapter four on the need for authority. And the and the point of that exercise is to go back and say, well, no matter what you do, you're claiming somebody's authority on something. You're either going to claim God's or you're going to claim your own, and there's no way around that. And so once people start to think in those terms, I think one of the other things that impresses me is people don't understand that everything that exists is under God's authority. Mm-hmm. Um, just just referring, again, to Hebrews 2 and its quotation of Psalm 8, talking about Jesus has been made for a little while, Lord, in the angels, and what does that mean? It says, you have put everything in subjection under his feet. There is nothing that is not subject to him, he says in uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 8. Hmm. So because everything is subject to him, we just have to assume Uh, I have to have authority for what I do and everything that I do. And though a lot of people in my generation give that, you know, the uh, lip service, it, it takes something else to really get down to our hearts.
0: Have we made a mistake maybe to some degree? Any of you guys speak to this, and Joe, speak up here. We haven't got you in here much yet in this discussion, but have we made a mistake maybe in talking about the authority of God's Word and kind of limited the scope of our discussion of it to collective activities, congregational activities, and rather than looking at it, first of all, from a big-picture point of view and saying, uh, in everything that we do, we're under the authority of God, and we need God's authority for what we do. And if we came at our lives that way, we might have an easier time coming at uh, our discussions about church activities and worship that way.
1: One of the things that I thought was helpful with this book, and I forget exactly how Doy mentioned it earlier. That is directed toward uh, Christians. Uh, I, when I taught through this book here at Fairline, uh, I made a pretty good distinction between uh, this isn't just church activities. This is dealing with the the whole of Christian life, um, uh, and we were able to really dig into various aspects of applying. God's authority everywhere, not just in the the few hours that we meet together. Uh, that that was one thing that I thought was really helpful with Doy's approach to this. So
0: Doy, what deficiencies? I'm assuming you wrote this book because you felt it was needed.
2: Well, in in one sense, that's certainly true, but uh, it, it's not that I thought oh, nobody before this has gotten authority or anything like that. I mean, that that's not the point of this book. But what I have done is uh, I, I've, you know, Luke talked about going down to a more uh, root level. Uh, part of what got me started on this was uh, years ago was teaching a Bible class. And I was using the typical kind of terminology that we use, command, example, necessary inference. And uh, somebody said, uh you know where do you get that from yeah and then where does that where does that terminology come from because i don't know any place in the bible that uses that particular terminology like that and uh, and i thought that was a pretty good question so i had to go back and say okay well here here's really the question that i begin with how do we communicate our wills to others uh, if i want if, if i have a you know i've got children uh, maybe I'm a boss at work or whatever. If I want to communicate my will to somebody, how am I going to do it? And uh, it, it, coming out of that was the, the basic, simple, what I believe is, is the self-evident, logical approach that, that I'm trying to use. And that is simply that that when we want to communicate, everybody does it the same way. We tell what we want. We show what we want. Uh, We imply things that we expect people to get. And so I I think if we can understand that at at the most basic uh, level, then it helps us in the rest of our communication.
0: So when we talk about um, showing, you talk about telling somebody what we want, showing somebody what we want, Uh, There there are various people uh, uh, in recent years who have doubted that really we can rely upon um, the Bible to show us things and, and to put it in language that a lot of people would be familiar with. They would say, we don't really get instruction from God by examples, or maybe somebody would say, examples aren't binding. You had a line in your book that I liked. Uh, in fact, I had used the line, and then I read your book and saw the same line there. It's kind of the wrong question to start with. Are examples binding? But what about this idea that um, we don't learn from examples in the Bible?
2: Well, I think it's, it's clear that you know, Scripture itself makes the point that we do learn from examples. And Romans 15, 4, talks about examples that we learn from, uh, from the Old Testament and so forth. Uh, and, but, what I like to talk about showing first from a, from a broad perspective.
0: Okay, go to a passage
2: that I often, uh, begin with there is Acts 10, because, uh, you've got all the, the whole package right there. Peter, when he's up on the roof and he sees the vision, uh, there and it's, and, uh, then he's perplexed about the vision and, and yet when he goes to Cornelius in verse 28, you know, he makes that point. God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you go back and look at the vision, of course, there's nothing in there about men. So not only is is Peter making the point that God has shown me, he's actually using, uh, he's actually inferring from that vision the meaning of it and drawing a conclusion. Uh, so my approach to examples is is not just the, the question, when is it binding, but to look at the fact that if, if we see an example of God's people doing what God likes, and it's clear that that's what God likes and what you know God wants, then my question really becomes more, if we have a comparable situation and we are able to do it, then why wouldn't we? I mean, to me, looking at it like, is it binding, is the same question of asking, well, do I have to? Right, right. And I I think that's beginning with the wrong attitude to begin with. If I see something that God likes, and I have a comparable circumstance, and I'm able to do it, why wouldn't I do it? What would keep me from doing it when I know this is pleasing to God?
0: It's the attitude of a willing subject to a sovereign king.
2: Right, and and to me that the attitude is the whole thing. If I'm approaching this from a "do I have to" perspective, then I've got the wrong attitude to begin with, and and something else I think needs to happen
1: at that point.
0: What what uh, what's some Joe? Did you have something there? I saw
1: you yeah. opening the book up. I, I I've got a different uh, train of thought. So go ahead, and finish. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going somewhere else too. Well, I don't know that I had uh, put together or. Sort of thematic verse of Isaiah fifty-two seven. Uh, this may be new for some of you all, but you know, right after Isaiah fifty-two comes Isaiah fifty-three, um, uh, and just thinking about how, that's why how we have Joe on the program. He's got those brilliant observations. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so just thinking about how it says, you know, your God reigns, and then we turn and look at Him suffering on the The cross, uh, and of course, the, the chapter ends with victory, chapter 53, and then carrying on in the, in the next chapters, but Paul does the same thing. I think you referenced earlier the Romans 10, and right after he quotes uh, Isaiah 52, 7, I think in the very next verse, then he quotes Isaiah 53, and so there's a connection between God reigning and the fact that Jesus suffered and died for us. Um, and I, somewhere in your book you talk about the the benevolent king i uh, thought I had that highlighted, but evidently i didn 't so i can 't find it quickly um, but I just think about how significant how meaningful that is uh, that the the one who is reigning over us is the one who we turn around and see him suffering for us
3: well it's it 's related to the issue of you know even forgiveness that that 's another discussion that I like in that book is that what what value does mercy or forgiveness have if somebody doesn't have the authority to give it? Who can give mercy? Who can provide mercy except the person who has the authority to give it to begin with?
2: Yes. And That's, a, I think, a very important point. Uh, and that is simply that if, if God does not have authority, then God doesn't have authority to give grace. And, and what connects that, I think, is Mark 2. Uh, because there you have that whole point, you know, is it Jesus demonstrating that he has authority on earth to forgive sins? Uh, if it, people, people want to pit authority against grace. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a wrong headed thing because without authority, there is no grace. You can't have grace without authority. There can be no giving because I don't have the right to forgive somebody's sins. I mean, I'm talking about in the in the big sense. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's just, you know, something we've got to recognize. Grace comes from the person who has the right to give it, and that's God.
0: When When I think about respecting the authority of God's word, one of the things that it seems to me, and you guys can comment on this, if you disagree, disagree, but it seems to me that, to the degree that we have a common understanding of the authority of God's word, to the degree that we respect the authority of God's word and the need to have a word from God for what we do, we're going to be more on the same page. Um, I'm talking about here I am in Exton, Pennsylvania. There's Joe in, in Fairlawn, New Jersey and you guys in Alabama. And we don't have an organization that controls us or tells us, what we need to do in our individual lives or in our worship with other Christians. But to the degree that we, we respect the authority of God's word, we're going to be more on the same page than if we don't. And if you look at the religious world, and people talk about all of the division that there is in so-called Christianity and all the different religious practices and beliefs, doesn't that come down to a lack of understanding of the authority of God's word?
2: I think bottom line is if, if we don't recognize God as as king and reigning and, and all of that, then yeah we're, we're going to have trouble with with authority issues
0: I mean, uh, just an example I mentioned instrumental music earlier to take the example of how a church uh, what kind of leaders a church has or how a congregation is organized. We read in the Bible about overseers and and shepherds and and elders. some translations might use the term bishops, and uh, pastors, um, and elders, uh, among people, representatives of various denominations, I don't, I I see, uh, I don't say everybody agrees, but I see considerable agreement amongst the representatives of various denominations that in the first century, and in the writings in the pages of the New Testament, these terms were all used for men in the same office. And yet, in those very, among those very same scholars, amongst those very same writers, in their denominations, uh, those terms are used for hierarchies where the different terms are used for different offices. The organization varies from one denomination to another, um, and it, it seems to be that it's an issue not of what does the Bible say or what was it talking about, but the relevance how, to what degree we have to follow what we see in the Bible. And that seems to be an authority issue.
3: Well, they, they typically view it as, well, these are the guidelines, not the actual rules, right? And yeah, that seems to be the prevailing thought, even among academia that I'm reading. Like Pirates
0: of the Caribbean? What, what did he say? What was the quote? <laughs> They're more like guidelines, something like that. The, I don't remember what he's even talking about, but okay. So that's, but isn't that, isn't that an, a, a problem in recognizing the authority of God's word when we say, well, these are guidelines.
2: It, it is. And, and I see this a lot where people, you know, when you, you have discussions about here's what God says, I've seen, I see these rejoinders to the effect that, well, the Bible is not meant to be a rule book, you know, well, I, okay, I, I get that. I understand the point they're trying to make, but that doesn't negate the fact that God has commanded certain things. He's told us to do certain things. doesn't negate the fact that, that he indicates his approval of certain things that he wants us to do, and that uh, implications and inferences are a significant part of that. I'd love to talk about that some, too. Go to uh, it.
0: Let's talk, let's talk about inferences.
2: Well, uh, I love to talk about inferences because I, I think that is probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of communication, but it is one of the most important aspects of all communication. I don't know of any communication that actually happens without the use of inferences and implications. And Of course, the, the communicator implies and the receiver infers, and uh, we all do it. There's no communication that happens without this. And I think you could look it up in pretty much any logic textbook. They'll talk about that. Uh, Implications and inferences are a significant part of of what we do and what we talk about. So when people say, for example, uh, you can't bind inferences or the only thing, I hear this sometimes, the only thing you can bind are commands, my question to them is, well, how did you reach that conclusion? (laughs) <laughs> because, because what that's saying basically is um, uh, we have inferred, we have concluded that mm-hmm. commands are the only thing you can buy. And, and there's no command that says anything like that. You have to, you have to infer that from information. And that's what an inference sim- simply is. It's a conclusion that you draw from the, 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 the data that you uh, obtain. Uh, We all do it. There's nobody that studies the Bible who doesn't do that. Uh, So I I illustrate this in in a few different ways. There's several passages we could go to, but let me real quickly just say two things I I often go to um, to demonstrate that every Christian believes in the binding power of implication and inference. Uh, Number one, I simply like to ask the question, uh, why are you a Christian? Why are you personally, a Christian. So if I were asking uh, Joe, for example, why are you a Christian? Because I don't read your name, Joe Works, in the Bible. I mean, I read about works, but, uh, you know, I don't <laughs> read about Joe Works uh, in the Bible. So at some point, Joe has to look at the Bible and say, okay, here's something that was written 2,000 years ago, and it needs to cross time and boundary and culture and come across to me in 21st century America and apply specifically to me. That's inference upon inference to get there. You can't get there without inference. So if you're going to say you can never bind an inference, you're going to have to say, well, there goes Christianity in the 21st century. Um, Secondly, I like to ask the question, you know, what's what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? And uh, everybody's going to say, Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Well, Jesus in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, of course, makes that that statement. Mm -hmm. But if you look carefully at the context, he says on these two commandments, hang the law and the prophets. He's not talking about the new covenant there. He's talking about the old. So at some point, you have to infer that that command transcends the law and the prophets into the new covenant. And cross time and boundary into 21st century America and apply specifically to me
0: and you, and that's done by inference. You can't get there without it. Okay. So then, once we say, once we acknowledge there are inferences, um, I, 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 um, I discern that God's word is applicable to me in that way does it end there or do we then find God actually uh, instructing us as to how we should live decisions we should make, how we should worship using inferences?
2: Well, a, a couple of passages that come to mind that, that reflect the way that we act, you know, Galatians five, 19 through 21 gives us the, uh, the works of the flesh. And, uh, De- let 's say deeds of the flesh, okay okay <laughs> the <laughs> deeds of the flesh uh, and you, at the end of that list you have that uh, that statement, and things like these uh, now how do you how do you approach that? Uh, how can we know what things
0: like these are there 's an implication uh, there 's some other things <laughs> well right. no, there's a statement there 's some other things. Uh, yeah, there,
2: and, and, and if you, first of all, you have to, you can't, if you can't infer, then uh, all of that becomes meaningless. Uh, I have to be able to, to uh, draw some conclusions about what things like these are and make some applications based on that list. You know, what are things like these? I think a passage like in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, uh, where the Hebrews writer makes the point that we are to, the, the, the mature person uh, trains his senses to discern good and evil. Uh, well, discernment's going to require some some uh, drawing some inferences and, and conclusions. Uh, again, there's no way around it. Some things you don't really have to discern; they're just stated point blank. But uh, you know, what do we do when it when we're not uh, we're not looking at specific statements of everything?
0: Let me ask you a question about the response that you've gotten to the book. I I assume you've gotten feedback. Um, I'd be interested to know. Uh, not only positive feedback, but negative feedback. What what objections have people raised, um, or has it all been positive? Uh, well, most brethren
2: have been pretty positive to me. I, I they haven't. Yeah, Joe's shaking his head. I know. Uh, <laughs> he just taught. You,
0: he it, just it, taught a class using the
2: book. But uh, I. Uh, I did see a review where somebody took issue with the idea that I didn't talk enough about love. And uh, he complained that uh, the longest chapter was on instrumental music. And that just shows what the problem is with us and so forth. Um, You know, but but I I, it seemed to me that either he didn't read the whole book or, uh, you know, misunderstood some of the points. But but anyway, uh, I expected uh, a, a good bit more negative feedback, you know, from that standpoint. But see, here's the thing. I I have tried uh, my best to uh, carefully make the argumentation in such a way that uh, in in, in many cases, at least at the foundational level, it's very, very difficult to disagree with. Uh, Not because I'm trying to win an argument, but because I, I think if we understand the fundamental basics about communication, The rest falls into place. I've had discussions with people who who complain about the, uh, you know, command example, necessary inference, the CENI, uh, and so forth, and they they complain about that. Um, But when we boil it down to tell, show, and imply, uh, and then I just basically have said, look, if you want to disagree with that, go ahead, but don't tell me anything, don't show me anything, and don't imply anything you expect me to get and I think that illustrates the self evident nature of this, and command example, and necessary inference are just the the, the basic uh, uh, representations of, of where those uh, where they come from
0: yeah I don't like in discussions and writings I see among brethren when they put that c e n i in their writings to me just just talking about it that way leaves the impression that we've got some kind of extra-biblical formula. And, and what you're trying to do, I think, is say, this is not an extra-biblical formula. This is communication. I guess I'd make this observation. Uh, I, maybe, I, I hope I'm not taking the passage out of context, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul talks about earthen vessels. When God chose to communicate his will to man, he did so in, through human beings. Not everybody hears directly from God. We hear from those who heard directly from God. And then it's communicated, and this is by design. It is communicated in our language. God has chosen to speak to us the way that that we communicate. And that gets down to what you're talking about uh, say, show, and uh, imply.
3: Uh, One of the passages that I had thought of, even before you said that, was going all the way back to Exodus 20 and then Deuteronomy 18, in which God did come and he spoke to the people. What was the people's response? We can't hear this. We're going to die. You choose somebody. You speak through that person in Deuteronomy 18. God says, you know what? That's a good idea. I'm going to speak through these prophets, and you're going to know my will through what they say. And So, like you said, I mean, I'm not going to restrict God's form of communication to only those three things. But I can say that men are always restricted by those things, and God has chosen to reveal his will through men. So
2: now when, when somebody now says, well, where do you find that in the Bible? My my response is to say, "Open your Bible to any page,
0: and there it is." Now, let me let me, Joe. Did you have something before I ask another question? So I, I've made this observation. And you may disagree with this, but I used to, and you can say if you disagree. Tell me what you think's wrong with it. But I, I used to work in a in a grocery store, and um, you know we would we would stock the shelves and we learned where everything was on the shelves. You you had your glass goods on this shelf and you had your plastic container goods on that shelf and so on. You might go to another grocery store and maybe they would stock, maybe they would categorize things differently. Um, Maybe instead of just all the glass goods being together, they would have all the condiments together and, and then they would have all the um, something else together. But however it was organized, it was all the same stuff. And, I've talked about when we use the, the language command, the example, implication, or necessary inference, we make the inference, God makes the implication. Uh, it seems to me that's a way of categorizing human communication. It's a way of categorizing how God speaks to us. And somebody may, might break it down into finer categories and have more categories or broader categories and have fewer categories. But how do we break Dan, down, we're talking about the same stuff. We're just, we're trying to explain how it's communicated. Is that fair?
2: Yeah. And I'm not trying to say, hey, this is the only wording, this is the only terminology to use. That, that's never been my purpose. Uh, I've just tried to break it down in, in ways that, that uh, started a very fundamental uh, standpoint. And, and a lot of that I, I did because I can remember my, my father telling me uh, years ago, Uh, we need to get back to basics. You know, we've really got to, because we we tend to forget sometimes that that if we don't start with the basics, we make assumptions, and sometimes those assumptions uh, can lead us to wrong places. Uh, So when people fuss about, uh, you know, command, example, necessary inference, uh, I I think the answer is, let's get back to some basics about this and and recognize that uh, there are some fundamental issues of communication at, at work here. Uh, the, and, and I do want to make one more point about this. Uh, what, that when people, uh, usually when we talk about this, they'll say, well, you know, I'm really talking about abuses. And, and I say, well, then then fine, let's talk about abuses because uh, not every inference is a good inference. We're not saying here that just because you you draw an inference that it's right. Uh, there are abuses of these categories, and uh, we need to talk about that. I mean, we need to understand what those are, but you know, first things first, you gotta, you gotta build on the fundamental building blocks.
0: Yeah, I wish I'd gotten, we're, we're gonna be out of time here, but I wish I'd, I'd I, it occurred to me earlier to ask you, uh, can we just make any inference we, we feel like making? Obviously not, we probably need to develop that sometime in a future webcast. Luke, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, Doy, thanks for being with us. Joe, anything you wanna throw in here, we got 30 seconds before we tell them goodbye?
1: I'll just say briefly, one of the things I really appreciated about the book is that it's written at a level that somebody like me can understand uh, it's and in, in all seriousness, it's not written at a scholarly level where I know doy is it's written it in a in a way that's easy for anybody to pick up and follow the the train of thought that's just been expressed here this afternoon.
0: There you go. So the book is Mind the King, Doy Moyer. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you to our viewers. We look forward to seeing you next week.